Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. Today, Kim and I will explore all things wine with you. And first, we'd like to start our show with telling you all what we Googled ourselves this week. So, Kim, what did you Google this week? I went a little old school. I didn't actually Google this, but I've been reading a very interesting book about food adulteration and the history of the USDA. And it was reminding me so much of a previous conversation that we had on air with you about labeling in wine. Is it important that wine labels tell the consumer what is in the bottle? And this, it really has just gotten me thinking about my take on it and how maybe we should be looking at a little bit more transparency as far as uh, labeling and telling people what they're actually getting in their glass of wine. What was the year on that, Kim? Was that 60s, 70s? Oh, late 1800s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So after the Civil War and when there was all this food adulteration and there were all these things that were completely unregulated by the government and it really did sort of fit into this mold of one political party wanted much less intervention by the government and was saying, no, you know, states' rights and the federal government shouldn't get involved in labeling and in telling consumers what's in their food. And the other political party was like, yes, we need to have more regulations. So it really started kind of that way. And then as the general public kind of were the ones that came forward and said, hey, we really want to know what's in our food and we really want to know is our milk white because it's pure or is it white because there's chalk dust in there? And it went to all different aspects of food, whether it's beverage or processed food or even just making fruits and vegetables look different and make them look fresher than they actually were. So fascinating stuff. Yeah, interesting. And how about yourself? Well, this week saw some information about a wine documentary called Science and Wine. And I did a search to find out where I could watch it and luckily I'm a Prime member Prime Video you mm-hmm. Prime Amazon we have Prime. Amazon Prime too so if you have Amazon Prime I suggest you search Science and Wine it's a documentary about how pesticides are being built up in soils and the things that these vineyards are doing to correct and investigating what's going on in the soils and how it's wrecked the soils over the years so, oh so there's a part of it where they're talking about how maybe they can clean up the soils yes how oh, they're trying how to clean up so really Really interesting documentary. It's great high def. It's geeky, <laughs> geeky wine The stuff. geeky stuff we like. So if you like documentaries like we do, please search it out. Our first topic today is from uh, 750.com, and it's an article about examining the science of a wine glass. And Kim, I know many times we talk to our listeners about wine glasses and the effects on tasting wine. So what was your take on this article? So this article was 
trying to examine whether the shape of a wine glass impacts how you perceive what it tastes like. And this is a topic that there's a lot of debate about in professional wine circles. Some people completely buy into the idea that the shape of your wine glass absolutely impacts how good that wine tastes. And other people are like, no, this is completely bogus. And I thought that this article did a pretty decent job of exploring the major pros and cons about this topic. Now, I know that you are a believer in the shape of the wine glass has an impact on the flavor of the wine, correct? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's where we have to go with this subject. I think we're both believers, but do we both follow it? Do we, when, when I'm drinking wine at home, I grab the same glass all the time, no matter what. So and, you have and, one style, one shape of wine glass I at home? I have a million styles, but I only take one. So you only so use I'm, one. I'm sure you have, well, we probably all have our sparkling wine glass or I the flute, that. and then we have every everyday glass and then we might have a tumbler or something for convenient outside use but what about you Kim you always changing your glass I'm always changing my glass yeah but I I think I'm kind of the opposite it's like I don't I don't know if I necessarily buy it that a wine glass necessarily makes a wine taste better or not taste better that being said I have like six different shapes that I use at home yeah. and I will pour Cabernet into my Bordeaux glass and I will only drink Pinot Noir out of my Pinot Noir glass and I only use my Sauvignon Blanc glass for for light whites, so I'm. I, th- I think I'm a. I'm a slave to tradition. So the you saying you don't buy it, you must believe in what they're saying here, the science behind it, right? We believe in the science. I believe in the science that when you swirl a glass of wine and the shape of the glass will concentrate the aromas up at the top of the glass, so that when you stick your nose in there, that it smells more powerful or that it has more of an impact on the aromas that you're getting. But I don't necessarily buy that it makes the wine taste different in your mouth. And that was a big part of what this article was saying, was that the concentration is more about the aromas and not necessarily about the flavors because so much of our taste is tied up with what our nose is doing and that the whole thing with the map of your tongue and that sweet is in a certain area and sour is in a different area and that that is a lot of what different wine glass shape manufacturers are trying to get you to believe is that the the wine will hit your palate in a certain way when you swallow it. But that wine map of your tongue or that taste map of your tongue has been disproven. It's You don't have taste buds for sweet right at the tip of your tongue. Um, you have them all over the place. So that's kind of what I don't buy into is that it's making the wine taste different when you take a swallow out of a glass that's one shape versus another shape. But I do buy into the changes in the aromatics of the wine depending on what the style and the shape of the bowl of the glass is. And they did focus a lot on that as far as the bowl size, the width of the glass, seeing that a wider glass de-emphasizes an over-aromatic wine, where a narrow glass emphasizes a a low aromatic wine. So that's why you would have sparkling. Besides the bubbles, you'd have a narrower glass. But I always... My thoughts on the big bowl glass was I I loved pouring aromatic wines into it to keep working the aromatics Mm -hmm. and open it up more. And this kind of went, I thought, against my thought on the wide bowl, saying it almost wants to lower the aromatics. Well, they, they kind of were implying that you need to let a wine just sit in the glass and then let it do its own thing as far as letting the molecular elements that turn into the aroma, like let them do their thing and build up at the top of the glass so that when you smell 
smell it, then you get a nice big hit of what those aromas are. This was almost against swirling. Did you kind yeah, of get that yeah. from this article? Yeah. That they I, were sort of proponents of not swirling your wine a lot. Like, I have no let it sit there. I know, I can't, because I have such a bad habit of just like continually swirling my wine. So that was, for me, a little bit different. Um, so let's go back to you. You were saying that the, where the wine hits your tongue, I've, I've seen a lot in the past on the lip of the glass and the, the bowl of the glass hits those key points on the tongue where you said sweetness on the tip of your tongue or bitterness at certain parts. So you actually saw a study that said the tongue guide is not true. So yes. Is it different for everybody or it's, just, it's not a go-to? It's just that it's not that, that you have specific taste receptors concentrated in any one place on your tongue, that that, that, that map was sort of bad science from 100 years ago. I would think a lot of people are different. Everybody's different. Oh, I'm sure everybody's different. we all different. taste different. Right, so. and we all, you know, different people have different numbers of taste buds or different receptors in different places. So, so sure. I mean, I can definitely see that, you know, maybe that is making the science a little fuzzy too because whose palate are we talking about? Whose right. tongue are we talking about? One thing that they did not bring up in this article, which I was surprised at because it's often mentioned when you talk about wine glasses, is the thickness of the glass and the quality of the rim of the glass because often when we are talking about more expensive glassware that is supposed to make the wine taste better we're talking about very very thin glass you know sometimes hand-blown glass too has a very thin lip so that it slides really well onto your palate and cheaper glasses tend to have really thick machine made rims of the glasses and that wasn't anything that was that was really mentioned here at all yeah the, the thickness I've never really thought about it but I'm sure it affects temperature and everything else but the lip the actual the rim Yep. of the glass. If you have one and that lip is going in, then when you go to put the wine to your mouth, it's it's stopping the actual wine from hitting your mouth. And it's kind of aggravating, you know, <laughs> a real thick rim that's going the wrong direction. So most of the finer wine glasses will have no lip whatsoever. It's just right to the glass, right? And it's narrow, it's thin. And many times you... you uh, Use them once and you break them in your dishwasher. They're, they're <laughs> they so are fragile. very breakable. They are very breakable. Kim, what's the name of the... Uh, I say Riedel. Is it Rydell or Riedel? Riedel. 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 So I was wrong both times. I always called it Riedel, but I believe it is it's Riedel. Riedel. So is this company's been around since the 50s. And right. if you go into... I know Target at one time had a whole display in their houseware section. And it had their whole lineup of glasses. I think they make 10 or 15 different style of wine glasses. Even water glasses. The glasses they recommend you drink water out of. What is your take on the Riedel? I know I th- Riedel. Riedel. I know we talked in the past about going to seminars that these people put mm-hmm. on to show the difference. And You've I been know to you, a couple, right? Yeah, and you, yeah, you as well, to. right? So there was a difference, right? Yes, but is that all... Because they put it in our heads, you is think? That, yeah, is yeah. that all smoke and mirrors? You know, is that all marketing? Is that sort of, this is the flashy show that we're, that we're putting in front of you? I, I don't know. It's it's really I'm, interesting, I'm still very uh, skeptical. Products they put out. I mean, it, you can spend some serious money just to buy one, you know, two glasses for oh for i know and they style. have some Burgundy, champagne and for their high-end line it's like a hundred bucks a glass maybe even more so they are they are very pricey now all that being said i do use riedel glassware that is what i drink out of at home um probably you know 95 percent of the time those are the wine glasses that i that i keep in my house and it's what we use on a daily basis not the most expensive ones probably i think it's like the second tier up of the ones that i use and i do have like i said like maybe six different styles. I like how they look. 
and for me, it's really an aesthetic thing. So it's pleasing for me to have nice, useful wine glasses around my house. So that's so that's what I use. That doesn't mean that it's right for everybody, but I like them. So t- tell me now, Kim, and tell our listeners, you're working for Legal Seafood. You're in the restaurant business. What is the mindset of a restaurant for wine glasses? So I think it depends on the restaurant. It's interesting, the same style of wine glasses that we use for the quality wines at Legal Seafoods are actually the same wine glasses that I use for all my private tastings. When I when I got in there and I saw the glasses, I'm like, oh, these are the ones that I use. So they're a... Uh, um, a red and a white? Just It's pretty much a standard. glass. Yeah. There's a separate glass that the restaurant uses for buy the glass offerings. And then there's another one that they use for buy the bottle wines. And those are the similar to the ones that I use. So if you look at the names of certain wine glasses, the bigger size, taller ones with a bigger bowl will usually be labeled as Bordeaux glasses or Cabernet glasses. And those are the ones that do seem to be pretty industry standard. And I've seen that style in other restaurants as well. So it's that's a really good all-purpose size and shape that I have found in the restaurant industry in Massachusetts. It gives you a lot of space to swirl around, looks nice in the glass. There's just, it's got a lot of things going for it. And here's one of the things I always want to ask you now that you're in the restaurant industry. (laughs) I walk in, I sit down at the table. Is there a wine glass already on the table to entice me to explore wine? Or do you only put the glass there when a wine is ordered? You only put the glass down when the wine is ordered. Yeah. Why? I always... I don't know. If it's in front of me, it's almost like there's a wine list in front of me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I might want to fill that empty glass with wine. I wonder right? if it has to do with you're going to clear everything off of that table and if So if I don't order if you don't order wine anyway. we still have to wash the glass. Yeah. That's always <laughs> one of my things with restaurants. I wish they just put it there to kind of re- maybe yeah. to remind people hmm. there is wine or, or put the wine list in the glass, something, you know? But I like these creative ideas. Yeah, I just I'm gonna keep these in the, the back of my head. I just don't understand why they don't do to to push it a little bit more. Mhm. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find out more information about Mark on his website, franklinliquors.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And you can find older episodes of our show on SoundCloud or iTunes. A couple of recent really good articles talking about the next generation of wine drinkers. We're talking about not millennials, uh, but they're called Generation Z. And this is the group of younger people who are really now just coming of age and being legal and able to purchase wine. So we have an article from Forbes, which is always a great place to go to for uh, interesting articles about the wine business and uh, Wine Searcher as well, talking about how do we engage this demographic and how are their consumption habits changing the wine industry? I thought these were both very interesting because we've been talking about millennials so much and now we have a new generation of hopefully potential wine drinkers that we need to start talking about. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with the challenges facing the industry and sadly fewer wine sales in the industry. And these were two of the factors uh, they mentioned. So I figured, Kim, let's start with the Generation Z. The ages, the these are people born mid-90s to the 2000s, and they're saying the big problem with this generation is they're uh, totally shunning alcohol. They're a healthier generation. Are you seeing that? Mm. I, mean, I, I, I definitely am. Generation. I definitely am seeing an uptick in 
interest in non-alcoholic beverages, but non-alcoholic beverages that sort of mimic alcoholic beverages. So there really has been this recent trend of mocktails and, you know, cocktails that have a lot of interesting flavor. And there are now these items that are kind of like spirits, but don't have any alcohol in them and are great for mixing. So there has been a lot of chatter about these sorts of things. And then lower alcohol beverages, you know, the spiked ciders, I'm sorry, not spiked ciders, but spiked seltzers and ciders and other things that have lower alcohol content closer to three, four, five percent that are delicious and are things that I think that younger people are starting to gravitate towards. But I think it's more that these are consumers or potential consumers who are a little bit more savvy about what they are potentially drinking. And so you, you know, you can't just be like, hey, drink wine. You know, th- there needs to be more engagement than than just, hey, this is, you know, this is what it is. And this is why we think you should be drinking it. You mentioned, Kim, the, the non-alcoholic products. And they, they were talking about Budweiser. I mean, one of the huge producers of alcohol. They're looking at 20% of its products will be non-alcoholic uh, by 2025. Mm-hmm. So they're looking at the future saying, this is a trend. We need to jump on it. And 20% of their product is, is a big That's percentage. That's huge, yeah. So the Gen Z is 25% of the U.S. population which is a pretty big number. And 61% of that population totally is not into alcohol. Well, I don't know how so. much data we actually have at this point for what are what are these young people actually looking for and what are their actual consumption habits. A little bit in this article about, you know, how many, how much of this population is a non-drinking population or is it just a few really loud people on social media? I will agree that there does seem to be this interest in in health and in moderation and in knowing what you are consuming. And we've talked about this on a number of occasions, but they did sort of bring up a very interesting point in that this is the generation, the first generation who really has grown up completely online. And you can't hide from your behavior when you're out in public. And if you're getting completely smashed, somebody is recording you, you know, someone has their camera out, someone's got their phone out, and you can never really be sure that what you are doing is going to stay private. So I think there's a little bit of this, you know, big brother is always watching. And if you are out and you're getting hammered, people are going to know about it. And if you are someone who is very active on social media, and you feel like maybe you have a reputation to protect, do you really want to have that side of you be uh, be public knowledge? I'm glad you mentioned the health part of it, because they every year they keep sending saying that alcohol consumption is dropping. And over the last 20 years, it's steadily dropping. And lately, there's a lot in the news about uh, how prohibition came about. Prohibition after prohibition ended. The big thing was based on health. We have to control alcohol so this doesn't happen again. People don't get out of control. And so they put rules in place. A lot of them were based on public health. Mm-hmm. And I think lately, the trend in in, the, in our state anyways, going the opposite way is in that they're not looking at public health. Maybe the younger generation is but as a as a state as a state do you mean as far as like regulations coming coming down from the leaders of the state yeah because it's become more of a consumer convenience than a public health standpoint. Mm, so mm-hmm. in other words, these people are already reducing at this generation, they're reducing their alcohol intake, but they're going to see more alcohol out there because we just keep continuing giving out licenses, which was totally opposite of what prohibition was. Right. 
So I'm curious if that increase in licenses and people seeing product is going to then get to this generation because they're going to see it everywhere. Are you saying, are you seeing too much market saturation and that at some point people are just not going to be necessarily purchasing from who they ordinarily purchase from because there's just so many licenses out there? It's just, it, there's going to be more of it. So I'm curious if that trend of the younger generation not being interested in it goes away because now mm. it's in their face Because the there is so much you out know, there. When I was a kid, you, you walk around the stores, the supermarket, you, you never had alcohol in your face all the time. You you know, now it's everywhere. So mm-hmm. I don't know how that impacts. Maybe this generation, like you said, they're shopping online anyway. Maybe they don't even see it. Right. But maybe they'll get more ads popping up on their social media. And that's an interesting thing from a solely Massachusetts perspective is as this is a generation of people that, yes, does so much more shopping online. And it is harder to get wine delivered in the state of Massachusetts, at least for now. So you really can't go online and buy wine. You can't go online and buy beer. I mean, you can go online to a low local store that will then deliver to you. But as far as Massachusetts consumers having access to wines that are available in other states, but not available here, that is still a bit of a roadblock. So I think that is going to be an interesting thing to watch as more and more purchases are being done online. How is the inability of consumers in Massachusetts to get alcoholic beverages going to be impacted? So they once again, Kim, they're, they're saying the total wine consumption will go down, but they said that the money spent on wine will go up. People are buying more quality Quality wine. So, which I think that's a great thing. People, when they are buying wine, they're looking at better quality, Mm -hmm. which I think is great. I wish they consume a little more, but (laughs) I think that's a good point about it though. And that ties directly in with what we do with wine education because we want to educate the consumer to not necessarily spend a whole lot more money per bottle, but to, you know, know a little bit more and so drink a little bit better for what works well for you. And I, that was one of the things I was going to follow up with you on too, Kim, is how do we engage the younger generation? How do you, I hate seeing wine not being popular. And when I see the younger generation shopping, they're not looking at wine. They're not spending the time to, to, to look at it. And I think when we do classes and stuff, we don't really get a big percentage of this mm-hmm. generation. Yep. So I think as educators, you know, what can we do? Right. You know, more. The industry's looking at that as well. And I think this segues very nicely into the other article that we looked at here, the one from Forbes, in that when you're looking at novice beginner wine drinkers who are just coming of legal age and and are just turning 21 or 22 or whatnot, there's always this kind of introductory period. You need to learn, I hate to say it, but you need to learn to drink wine. Just like you need to learn to drink coffee, you know, you don't start out with espresso. Maybe if you're Italian, you start out with espresso. But you don't start out with big, bold Bordeaux. Everyone needs an entry-level introduction to a new type of beverage. And the big question that is posed here is, all right, if we are going to engage those younger drinkers who are just now of legal drinking age, what is the entry-level wine product? It, and it's always changing, but it always has certain characteristics. So whether it was White Zinfandel, whether it was Matus, whether it was Moscato, lighter, slightly sweet, off-dry, 
styles of wine that are delicious and yummy and are not too harsh on the palate. Get people used to that beverage and used to the amount of alcohol in there because wine has higher alcohol levels than than beer does. And gradually people's palates tend to change. Not all the time. Sometimes you like White Zinfandel and you're going to stick to drinking that for the next 30 years. But for a lot of people, their palates do change. And you know, you explore new things and you find new favorites and stuff like that. But what is that entry-level wine product now? And the jury is sort of out on that. A lot of people say it's Prosecco. A lot of people say it's still Moscato. A lot of people say that it's those sweeter red blends that are out there like Apothic. And yeah, it's interesting to sort of think about, okay, what do we have in the market right now that will be appealing to those 21, 22, 23 year olds? You mentioned the baby boomers, Kim. Their entry level in the 70s, 80s was that sweet Lambrusco, Matus, mm-hmm. but they became very knowledgeable in, in one of the highest groups of consumers of wine. So now the worry is, how do we get the younger? Do, do, is it that sweet stuff? Is it that, like you said, Prosecco? Is it Moscato? And that's what I see him starting with, which is good. If that, it worked for the baby boomers. So I don't think the, it's just good. I think it's necessary. Yeah. You have to start at something like that, mm-hmm. I, I believe. But it, when they, it feels good when they'll say, okay, I've been drinking Moscato. What else? Yeah. You know, yeah, what else I think can that's we do? cool too. One of the things they were talking about, Kim, is the, the U.S. population, 300 something million people 35 million people in the u.s are residents that drink 85 percent of the wine so it's a very small number and every year it gets tougher and tougher to grab and and increase that number one of the things recently i saw was a new product that these bigger corporations this younger generation they they know they grew up with harry potter they grew up with science fiction stuff right so they're trying to come out with wines themed towards that towards magic towards mystery to get them involved Hmm. you think something like that is good for the younger generation I have no idea. Trick? I no? think it's marketing, you know, but I don't know anything about marketing. I I honestly don't understand why certain things work and why other things don't work, honestly. So, I think I think that's kind of kitschy and and maybe it is successful. I mean, how successful were those Game of Thrones wines, you know, that were marketed and labeled? Is that just sort of a flash in the pan? Hey, I'll buy a bottle of it, but then it doesn't stick around. And, and yeah, cause most of I kind of feel like this it. would be somewhat similar. They won't open it. They'll yeah, just, you know, just keep it as... A bottle. <laughs> and, that's not what yeah. we want. No, we want people to drink it and then keep buying some more. What about the, the... They stated that most of the decline is due to the cost of wine is a lot more than the cost of beer. So the millennials are looking at cost as far as wine. So that's what shuns them away. I don't know if I necessarily buy this because look at craft beers and look at how expensive a four pack of craft beer has gotten. You can go into a store and buy a four pack of so like what do you sell? You know, yeah, it's the, up there up with 14, 15 bucks yeah, a four pack. Up there with, and, you know, a decent bottle of wine. That. Yeah, that's a great point. And plus yeah. they'll go and stand at these local breweries for hours in lines for limited beers and only get one can or one bottle but they're just not into into wine yeah i mean i can i can certainly buy the the idea that wine is a little bit more expensive of an item but if you're going to turn around and spend that same money on something else that is also an alcoholic beverage i don't necessarily buy that it's beer versus wine and that expense is the cost is is the the problem and they said in this also kim last 25 years, 60% of the growth in drinking is age 50 to 70. 
That should be concerning to us. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, that generation's getting older and the sales are going to drop yeah. probably drastically. That being said, I do see a lot of interest from younger people. You know, a lot of the people that I have coming to my events or that I see, you know, out in restaurants are younger people and they are drinking wine. And I don't mean younger just you know, people in their 30s versus people in their 50s. But, you know, people in their 20s, people in their early 30s, people in their 40s, there is there is a lot of interest out there in wine. And part of that may be we are in a lucky area for fine wine consumption. The East Coast, the West Coast, we're really lucky here in the Massachusetts area that we have great restaurants and we have a, a market that is fairly strong when it comes to these sorts of things. I mean, New York City is as well, of course. But I wonder how much of these statistics is looking at at the entire country and not just our areas that happen to be very fortunate when it comes to wine's accessibility and wine appreciation. One thing that bugs me about these stories saying that sales are down and this generation is not buying is you can never tell what type of wine is not selling. What sales are down? Is it the sales in the big box stores, the convenience sales, or is it fine wine sales? Mm-hmm. Is it 1.5 liter bottles of big brands or is it those better wines that are $12 and up? Well, they said people are spending more but buying less. So to me, that interprets as they're going the fine wine route. Yeah, that they're moving up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that the bigger brands you see in big box stores should be going down because they're they're not in that price point. But they don't really separate by price or location. Everybody's considered one big pool, which to me is not the same statistic. Even, Mm -hmm. Even restaurants aren't considered separate from that. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find older episodes of our show on iTunes and SoundCloud. And of course, go over to our Facebook page, The Wonderful World of Wine, and leave your questions and comments. Cheers.